fresh every Tuesday for MSPs around the world. This is Paul Green's MSP Marketing Podcast. Well, hi there, and welcome to the show. Here's what we got coming up for you this week. I didn't know that it was like SEO. I didn't know what link building was. I kind of just did it, like reading stuff on the internet and following advice. And I did it with this website this way. So if we try it again, it'll probably work again. And then it did. That's Nick Rubright. He's an SEO expert, search engine optimization. And he's come across an amazing new methodology where you get local media attention for your MSP and actually turn that into some SEO juice. You use the local media attention to get a better ranking for your business within Google. He's going to be here later on in the show explaining exactly what you can do. We're also going to be talking about big new ideas. I don't know about you, but I have new ideas all the time. And these days, I've started letting them soak a little bit. What do I mean by soak? I mean slowing them down, seeing if they're worth pursuing or whether there's something that's just actually going to be a distraction. We'll look at whether or not you should do that for your big ideas later on in the show. Paul Green's MSP Marketing Podcast. Pricing is always an emotive subject for MSPs to talk about. In fact, if you were listening back in February, I think it was episode 117, and I did a reminder, like a six-month reminder to put your prices up. But one of the things we didn't talk about back then was the psychology of pricing. And I think the psychology behind prices is absolutely fascinating because it could be that right now you're charging a per user or a per device fee that you could actually increase without psychologically there being any impact on your existing clients or indeed any impact on any prospects that are looking at your business. The psychology of pricing is all about how people perceive prices. So let's say, for example, you charge £31 or dollars a month. So it's 31 per user per month for whatever it is that you're currently selling, whatever you're bundling together right now. From a psychological point of view, 31 is the same price as 32, 33 or 34. So you could charge £34 or $34 per user per month and psychologically that has the same impact on the buyer as does charging 31. So if you are currently charging a, a, a one or a two or a three, you can you can nip that up to a four. And it's the same if you're charging, like, you know, if you're charging 35, that's the same price as 36, 37, 38, 39. Now, when that changes is when you jump up to a new level. So let's say, for example, you're currently charging 31 per month, 35 is a new level. It's like because because of digits. You know where digit. You know where the word digital comes from, don't you? It's it's from our hands. If you look at your fingers right now, we've got five fingers on each hand. This is where digital comes from because our brains think very easily in units of five and ten. So we see a five and a ten as the start of something new. So if you're currently charging thirty-one, thirty-two, whatever, and you pop it up to thirty-five, that is a jump up to a new level, and that's where there is an impact. So if you're charging 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, they're all the same price. You start charging 35, that's the price going up. But then 
35, 36, 37, 38, and 39 are all the same price, whereas 40 is the start of a new pricing level. Does that make sense, yeah? So you can see there our brain, because it's thinking in units of five and 10, when we move on to a new unit of five or 10, that's where the impact is. So there's two opportunities here. One is to put up your existing prices without that impact. So if you're not at a, a, a four or a nine, you can bump it up to a four or a nine with very little impact. There won't be a massive impact of you doing that. The other thing to be aware of is that when you do go on to a, a five or a zero, that you are moving on to a new level and you need to be ready for maybe some little pushback. I mean, you don't typically see a lot of pushback from happy clients when you increase the prices and, you know, inflation and all that stuff. Prices have to go up at least once a year. But just to be aware that it's psychologically more of an impact, even if the increase is only one, you know, it's one pound or one dollar. If you're moving on to a five or a zero, there is that psychological move onto a new level. Now, the other aspect with the psychology of pricing is how the price ends. So, for example, if you charge someone a full amount, so let's say you charge them 35 a month, that feels like an artificial price. In the same way that if you were to charge $34.99, which is kind of the same price, isn't it? Again, that feels like a, an artificial price. It's a price that you as a retailer have decided to sell it at. And we've been trained our entire lives by shops that something that's for sale at $34.99 is it's a clever retail price. It's designed to hide the fact that you're actually paying $35 for that item. Now, that wouldn't necessarily impact on a price you were charging per user per month. But let's say, for example, you were selling them a new service. Let's say they bought a, I don't know, a new security service from you. And you said to them, well, the price per user is 12. It's 12 pounds or 12 dollars per user per month, whatever you're charging. That feels like you have made up the price. And there's nothing wrong with that, but you may get a little bit more pushback because that's an artificial price. The way to make that price look less artificial is to end it in an unusual figure. So for example, instead of charging 12 pounds, you charge them 12 pounds 58 or 11 pounds 97. Actually, no, you wouldn't go with 97, 11 pounds 87, something that doesn't look retail-y and salesy and something that shops wouldn't do. And the beauty of this is you can hide your increased profit margins by hiding your unit cost in an unusual figure. If someone's buying something for 20 pounds 12 or 20 dollars 12, it seems as though you're just buying something in and putting a bit of margin on top of it. And actually you could be putting 10 to 15 pounds or dollars of margin on top of that. They don't necessarily know that, but what they see is something that feels a little bit more right to them. So that's only a couple of very basic things on the psychology of pricing, but actually these things can make a big difference. And often it's not people thinking about this with their brain, it's just them going with it with their gut feel. If their gut feel says, hey, that's that's a retail price, you're making this price up, or they look at it and they think that you're pushing it past a barrier, you know, you're moving it onto a new level, onto a zero or a five, that's where you can get a little bit more pushback. If you understand how our brains work and how our emotional reactions are to these kind of price changes, then you can safely put up your prices without having to worry too much about it because you know the point at which people are going to notice 
And you know the point at which they're just not going to. Here's this week's clever idea. I don't know about you, but I have new ideas all the time. I mean, literally all the time. And not just for improving my current business, but new business ideas, new exciting opportunities. You know, I read widely. I read lots of books. I listen to lots of podcasts. I'm involved in lots of different forums. And at least an hour a day, I'm just kind of researching, looking to see what people are talking about, what's new out there, what's exciting, what are people getting annoyed about or excited about, and inevitably all of these things generate for me new ideas. I use a piece of productivity software called Todoist and I adhere to the principles of Get Things Done, which is by David Allen. It's a great book. I think it's called Get Things Done or Getting Things Done. I highly recommend you go and read it. And one of the concepts of getting things done is that when you have an idea, you don't leave it in your head. You get it out your head as quickly as possible. And the way I do this is I have an inbox in my Todoist. So if I'm reading things or even just driving or thinking about stuff, as I have an idea, I dump it into my inbox as quickly as I can. And often I'll get to the end of a Friday and there'll be just a ton of ideas waiting for me in my inbox. Far more ideas than I can actually implement. But this isn't necessarily a bad thing because it means I've always got something new, something exciting that we can do with the business or some other new project that I can pursue. And maybe you're the same. This is the thing about being an MSP. There's so much discussion and you're used to change anyway. You know, everything changes in technology every, well, every seven years, I guess it completely changes. But there's always something new going on. The problem I have, and maybe you have this problem, is that sometimes I'll get really excited about an idea and I'll start to pursue that idea and then a few weeks down the line I realize I've made a mistake and actually that wasn't such a great idea after all. Does this happen to you? These days before I start taking action on an idea I let it soak properly and the way that I do this is if I have something that excites me I'll sleep on it. I'll just literally push the idea away, push it to the back of my head and I'll sleep on it. And you know what? Overnight, my brain and all of its amazing problem-solving capacity, it's all unlocked while I sleep. It's exactly the same in your brain. I'll wake up in the morning and in the shower, I'll have ideas about this idea suddenly coming at me. It's like a, a torrent of answers, a ping, 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 things I could do, places I could take it, other ideas that are related to this. And often that's the point I'll get excited and then because I'm a person of action, I'll just start taking action on it. So I'll bring in one of my colleagues and say, hey, I've had this idea. I think we should do this. Let's do this and this and this. And I'll set stuff up and set up meetings. And what I've learned over the last couple of years is actually that's a danger point. Because at that point, I've only had around about 18, maybe 20 hours for that idea to soak. And that's not long enough. Because at the beginning of an idea, at the germ of that idea, of course it seems like a good idea because it's new and it's exciting and your brain has fleshed it out for you while you sleep. But here's the thing, just because it's a new exciting idea doesn't mean it's the right idea for right now. Maybe it doesn't fit with the strategy you've got for growing your MSP right now. Maybe it's a distraction. Maybe that idea of, hmm, I should switch PSA is really not a good idea at all because you switched PSA six months ago. And I know that that in itself can be a habit. Hmm, let's switch PSA every six months. Not a good habit to get into. So what I've started doing now is when it's a big idea and it's exciting, I've started soak testing even more. 
once I've got all excited about it, I write it down. I almost write out a project plan. It's just some notes in my pad. I'll flesh out all the ideas, all the different variants, who I'd want to be involved, how it could work, and then I will deliberately forget it for a few days. Now, because I use Todoist quite extensively, I'll actually schedule myself a timed task for three or four days down the line to come back at this and have a look at it and ask myself some tough questions. Does it fit within our current strategy? Is it a distraction? Does it help us get to where we want to be faster or is it actually going to hold us back? And so three, four days down the line, I have a look, I ask myself those questions. And I've got to be honest, the vast majority of these new ideas, they do not pass the stress test because they were great ideas and maybe they're things I should do down the line, but they're not right for right now. When I have a particularly exciting idea and it's a real big one, I'll take that a step further. I will actually jot the name of the idea down on a post-it note and put that post-it note on my bathroom mirror. So I've got my own bathroom connected to my bedroom, so I'm the only one that sees this idea. And that means that at least two or three times a day, I'm seeing that idea there on the mirror in front of me. It's almost like a reminder for my brain to revisit that idea and start to think through different elements of it. And the benefit of this is sometimes the idea is so good that I reject it because it's huge. It's a massive idea and it would completely swamp what we're doing right now. You see, what I'm trying to do here is not reduce my creativity. I'm not trying to reduce the number of good ideas that I have. There's always good ideas to act on. What I'm trying to do is make sure that the new ideas get me and my team and my business to where we want to be going without too many subroads, distractions, side avenues, whatever you call them. And sometimes to do that, you have to let those good ideas soak in a little bit. What's your system of assessing and rejecting good ideas? Perhaps that's something we can talk about in our MSP Marketing Facebook group. Paul's blatant plug. So that Facebook group that I just mentioned, it's a great place for you and me to have a conversation. Now, it's only for MSPs. It's very easy to get to. If you go into your Facebook app, go onto the little search bar up at the top and type in MSP Marketing. Go on to groups, you'll see my little face, and you can tap on that and apply to join. And in that group, we talk about so many things. I mean, I'm just scrolling through it now. I've got a thing here about productivity time trackers, because so I fell out of love with something called Timeula. I know, I've talked about it loads in this podcast, and now I'm trying something different called Clockify. So we've got a good old discussion there, and there's a whole series of comments. Uh, <laughs> there's an interesting post. We're talking about putting up your prices, and that's got 20-odd uh, comments as I look at this. There's all sorts of different subjects that we talk about in this group, but it's only for MSPs. So if you want to join, go onto your Facebook app. You can join that there and it'll be great for you and me to have a conversation. Just for MSPs, it's a vendor-free zone and it's the MSP Marketing Facebook group. The Big Interview. My name is Nick Rubright and uh, I'm the CEO and founder of New Reach Marketing and we do SER and PR focused link building. And that's why I wanted to get you onto the show today, Nick, because you have what I think is actually quite a unique methodology for boosting your website by using your local media. And in fact, uh, as a former journalist myself, I when we were discussing this, I instantly saw the power in this, in that it can give you some valuable credibility in your local market and some incredibly valuable backlinks to your website. So we'll come on to that in a second. Let's first of all, 
all explore you. So what's what's your background, Nick, and how have you got to a position now where you're running an agency and you're you're teaching people how to do this stuff and doing it for them? So I started in college, actually. After college, I had no money um, and I never wanted to work for anyone. So I built my own blog that was, a well, I was building a music streaming app and that's why I kept skipping class. I was working on coding this app and stuff, got it into the app store. It was a Spotify competitor. I had trouble negotiating with uh, record companies for music licenses. So I wanted to get musicians onto the platform. And that's where I started learning about cold outreach is I I was reaching out to record companies, reaching out to musicians on Facebook and just trying to get them on the app. And I was like, man, this is tough, dude. It takes a lot of work to get one, you know? So I was like, I need to get more. I need to figure something out. So I, I built a music blog and I got it ranking in Google for things like music marketing, music promotion. And I eventually monetized it with affiliate revenue and made $2,000 a month through Amazon's affiliate program. Um, so at that point, I was kind of living good enough and I was like playing Xbox, you know, just kind of had this passive income stream. And then I got hit with a Google algorithm update and it tanked everything. And I lost all my money and literally overnight. From there, I just became an Uber driver for like two years. And I just kind of was like, where am I even going, dude? Like, I don't know what I want to do. And then after I was doing Uber, I went to my parents and I'm like, you know that blog I built that made me money? I bet other people would like to make money like that. What if I sell that? I didn't know that it was like SEO. I didn't know what link building was. I kind of just did it, like reading stuff on the internet and following, you know, advice. And I started doing freelancing. And then I was like, I told my first client, I'm like, look, I don't know a lot about this stuff, but I did it with this website this way. So if we try it again, it'll probably work again. And then it did. I did the same thing for all my other clients. And then eventually I was like, man, I'm doing the same work for everyone. I could just teach this and outsource it. Tried hiring people in the beginning and it didn't work out because it was really tough to figure out how to manage a team and grow and everything and have them do this PR style marketing that I do. Eventually I had clients coming my way going, dude, we need help. I had like WebEx, I had some other bigger startups with large budgets. And I told them like, I can't work with you unless I can hire someone. And they were like, that's fine. And I was kind of like, Oh, really? Oh, man. (laughs) You know, so then I built my agency. Now I have an agency. And then in one year, we've gone from kind of not really zero dollars, but like me making around 80K a year, like whatever regular salary to like 800K a year. Wow. After one year. So it grew pretty fast. And we just do our own work for us. You know, I do the same stuff I do for my clients for us. We do content marketing, SEO, guest posting, um, PR style outreach, just the same thing. So I think I think the problem a lot of MSPs have when we talk about this kind of content marketing and link building and all of the things we're going to talk about in this interview is I think there's a there's a very healthy dose of or scoop of skepticism that that goes yeah. with it. You know, I talk to lots of MSPs and I, I don't have anywhere near as much technical experience as you do in actually doing this stuff. I'm more of a marketing strategist, but I know it works. I've seen the benefits for myself. I've seen the benefits for some of my uh, members of the MSP Marketing Edge service. You know, I've seen it. In, in fact, I, I worked, I ran a, a, an SEO company for six weeks for a friend. He bought it and he was selling it. And I, I saw what a difference that company made made for its clients, you know, when they when they did the work properly. So do you, do you experience this? Because I know you do work with with some MSPs, but do you experience this with lots of other business owners as well? Or is this is this just technology people who have that element of, of skepticism? I think it's everyone because it's hard to understand. And it's like this weird blend of art and science. And like, because, you know, you have the business people who are so data driven, but then you have like, the people who actually do the good work, and they're more like, artists, you know, they don't know why it works. They're just like, they care about their audience. Right. And I'm a musician myself as well. So I think 
having that hybrid of being a musician and a data-driven marketer is what gives me a perspective on why this stuff works. Do you want to um, just explain and, and talk to me as if I'm five, okay. eight maybe, and, and explain it to me as if, as, as if I don't know marketing, as if I don't know what's going on, and, and, and sort of take, take us through what it is that you're trying to achieve, why you're trying to do it, and what the benefits are. All right. I have a lot of practice trying to explain this to my mom. So here it goes. (laughs) When you're trying to rank in Google locally, you're often trying to rank in Google Maps. And when Google uses map listings, they're looking for localized signals. And part of those localized signals they look at is the backlinks. You can get backlinks from other websites that say things like, oh, lawyer in New Jersey or whatever, and that'll help. But if you get a backlink from a local website that Google knows is local because it covers top, you know, subject matter in the area, that's a better target. And the best targets for that is local news sites. If you get a backlink from a local news site, basically what I'm saying is it will help improve your Google rankings on Google Maps as well as in organic. So it's the most valuable backlink for a small local business to go after. We research the market inside the client. I'm going to speak to you kind of as if you're coming at me like a client. Yeah, sure. So if I were to take on a client, um, I would research the market. So I'm in uh, Tampa, Tampa, Florida. So I would research Tampa, be like, what is everyone talking about around here? What's like the culture? You know, what are the journalists like? What questions are they trying to answer? What stories are they trying to tell? And then you focus on developing on your website story focused content. And a go to I do for that is um, infographics. But, you know, you can't just make an infographic and it's going to work. It has to be something that's like make the infographic something that when the journalist looks at it, they go, dude, I could totally use this in my story about whatever. Um, Or I could use this to keep telling my story. The example I have is a law firm we worked with in New Jersey. Um, we were, it was around the holidays. The law firm had been gathering all this data on car accidents and most dangerous roads around the city, you know, for their clients and stuff. So we built a car accident statistics map infographic of like, you know, just color coding all the most dangerous roads and areas. And we pitched it to journalists and then they liked it because it's like the, the pitch, the angle was watch out travelers to New Jersey. Here's the most dangerous road. So here, you know, find a safe route. So it's almost like we built this campaign designed to help journalists help their audience. Yeah. And it worked. We got the infographic on TV, got it on their website, and we got two awesome backlinks from it. That's amazing. Now, so here's the thing. So I, I was um, a newspaper reporter for a few years, and I did 10 years on radio as a, as a presenter, and a, I was like, re, you know, the breakfast show newsreader and uh, all of that kind of stuff. And um, then my very first business I started was a traditional PR agency, because that's what journalists do when they start their own business. And um, what you've done there is is a classic, classic example of generating a story out of nowhere, which you know the local journalists are going to be all over. And yeah. it's, it's a genius piece of thinking because the, the trick with any marketing is to, is to look at the other person and think, what do they want? What do they want? What do they need? Or what are they scared of? Now, that's the case with all marketing. When you do it with, with PR, you're, you're trying to put you, the journalist in your head and say, what does this journalist want? And this journalist wants entertaining stories that their audience will be entertained by. And don't, yeah. you know, don't for any second think that news is anything more than entertainment. That's, that's really yeah. what news is. So you, you and that's a genius example putting together a map of the most dangerous roads in this area and having a lawyer do it as well is utterly, utterly brilliant. So that's completely genius. So you've now generated, I think you said a dozen or a couple of dozen uh, uh, backlinks. So backlinks being where the media has written about this story and they have connected 
they, so they, they've actually connected to the lawyer's website. So how did you get them to connect to the lawyer's website? Well, the trick in doing that and using it for link building is to make it necessary to link out for their readers. So because we created the infographic and it was hosted on our site, they pointed to us like, hey, check out the infographic that this firm made. And then they link for credit. Um, even if it's just a credit link in that case, it still adds this local authority. And that's what we want for Google Maps. I don't know anyone else who's figured that out of like the local links and the maps and stuff. But, you know, if I'm looking at the evolution of Google and how they improve their algorithm over time, they're getting a lot better at reading backlinks. And it's almost like, dude, you just want to do it right now. The right way is kind of this PR angle. It's ab- absolutely genius, uh, and, and do you know what? What I why I like about it is it's it's simple, and what, what we haven't talked about is the um, authority of that law firm being able to say, "Oh, we were featured in you know this newspaper, this radio station, yeah. this radio station," and that's huge. Now that in itself is very unlikely to generate leads, but it gives credibility because people perceive that journalists pick. The, the best experts, and they don't. They pick the most convenient experts who've come along with the most entertaining stories. And I yeah. know that because I had a 13 year, year career doing exactly that. And you yeah. know, the, the, the journalists in, uh, in, in New Jersey will be exactly the same as, as the journalists in, in virtually any Western world. Nick, tell yeah. us a little bit more about your agency and how can we get in touch with you? The agency's website is newreachagency.com. It'll soon be redirected as we're rebranding. We just do um, content and links, and then we do consulting for technical stuff. We mostly focus on SEO. So if people are wanting something that's like PR, but with an SEO focus, um, that's something that we would do or just link building or just like content marketing. Anything where it's like build a page on my website and promote it and get it to the top of Google, that's the kind of stuff we So Nick, thank you so much for your time on the podcast. Now you and I are going to continue our conversation. We're going to move over onto YouTube for our extended interview. And I've got a whole list of things here I want to talk to you about. I I think you were saying earlier, you've gone from, you know, revenues of sort of 80,000 to 800,000. And I wasn't sure if if that was annual uh, or monthly. So I want to talk about the the hell of rapid growth because actually growing that fast and, and that intensely can be, uh, can actually be quite stressful, although everyone wants growth. I think that that kind of uncontrolled growth can be can be quite stressful. So I want to look at that. Um, you talked about SEO, search engine optimization, being a blend of art and science, which I want to explore a little bit more with you. Also, some of the the cool stuff you talked about, like you're in a band and you've had half a million plays on Spotify. So I want to I want to talk about what that's like yeah. and uh, and what it's actually like to to try and start a competitor to something like Spotify, uh, even if Spotify wasn't as big then as it was uh, as it is now. So we're going to do that over on YouTube. If you want to come and enjoy the rest of this interview with Nick, join us right now at YouTube.com/slash MSP Marketing. Paul Green's MSP Marketing Podcast. This week's recommended book. Hi, Miles Walker here from Graphis. And the book I'd like to recommend today is The Big Con by Tony Sales. I got the chance to interview Tony a couple months back. And Tony is known as Britain's greatest fraudster. The book details his life from growing up as a kid to now. Insightful stories, horrific stories, and uh, tales that you really wouldn't imagine. Coming up next week. Hi, I'm Andrew Moon. I run a company called Orange Nomad. I turn hustling entrepreneurs into calm, unstoppable CEOs. I'm excited. I'm going to be on Paul Green's MSP Marketing Podcast next week, talking all things LinkedIn, all things entrepreneurship. Tune in. We'll also be talking next week about something called imposter syndrome. 
Have you ever had that feeling where you're sat with a client or a prospect and suddenly it strikes you that you're an imposter? You don't really know what you're talking about, which is kind of crazy because you've been doing this for, what, 5, 10, 15 years, right? We all sometimes have that feeling of imposter syndrome. And next week, we'll talk about what it is, what causes it, and how you can overcome it. We'll also be talking next week about the power of going for a walk with your team, even if they're remote. And yes, you can take them for a walk if they're remote. It's just you're going to be walking in different parts of the country. We'll talk about the power of going for that walk and why so many big business leaders from history used exactly that to get the most out of their team. So don't forget our extended interview with Nick Rubright is on YouTube. You can go and access that on YouTube now. And our show about the show, Another Bite, that's going to be on YouTube this coming Thursday. You can access both of those at youtube.com slash marketing. While you're there, please do subscribe to us on YouTube. And of course, subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. Join me next Tuesday and have a very profitable week in your MSP. Made in the UK for MSPs around the world. Paul Green's MSP Marketing Podcast.